I'm not sure how many of you may be aware of this. A statistical survey study was done, I think it was the latter part of last year. Did you know, did you know that there are far more fatalities due to selfies gone wrong than shark attacks? It's not because the sharks are going vegan, by the way. Uh, as far as I know. Um, now, what does that have to do with anything we're going to talk about this morning? I don't know. No, actually, it does, does have something to do with it. Um, there's a uh, headline that I saw. Some of you may have seen this as well. I think it was last Sunday, Monday, somewhere in there. Um, something like this, depending on where you saw it. Uh, Twitter users, users, Twitter users scold woman who posed on a 2,800-foot mountain's edge. Quote, no picture is worth falling. It all started with a 15-second video that was posted on the internet, went viral. This woman is there posed on Pedra de Gavea in Brazil, and she's inching down this near-vertical slope trying to get the perfect pose, and she did. She's smiling the whole way, and then towards the end of the video, she raises up her arms in triumph, and, and that's Fortunately, where the video stopped because she, she did live. She didn't fall off to her certain death. Stunning view, absolutely stunning view. Rather uncertain footing. There's actually none, it's just air. Uh, and hence, that just blew things up on, on the internet, and she was the, the object, the, the target of a lot of critique on that. Uncertain footing. Um, you know, you really, whether it's on, on a path or on a mountaintop, uncertain footing, not knowing really where you stand is not a good thing. Uh, that, that's certain when it comes to high altitude. It's, it's certain when it comes to relationships, uncertain footing, not knowing where you stand, not having certainty regarding those things. Uh, it's true of relationships, one to another, uncertain footing, not knowing where you stand, but not just in terms of relationships one to another, you know, here in the horizontal sphere, but how much more so uncertain footing, not knowing where you stand with God himself. Now, that's an awful place to be. That's an awful place to be. Can we know? Can we know in a way that's not hinging on us? in a way that he is giving, in a way as he is giving that gives us certainty of, of footing and standing, knowing where we are with him. Well, absolutely, we do. Uh, we can. Uh, if you have your Bible with you, I ask you to turn with me to Matthew. It's going to be on the, uh, the text on the screen. Um, and... Uh, Matthew chapter 26 is where we are, verses 17 through 30. Matthew 26, 17 through 30. Follow along now in your Bible or on the screen. Hear now God's word. Matthew 26, verses 17 to 30. Now, on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? He said, Go into the city to a certain man and say to him, The teacher says, My time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. When it was evening, he reclined at table with the twelve, and as they were eating, he said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. 
And they were very sorrowful and began to say to him one after another, Is it I, Lord? He answered, He who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Judas, who would betray him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? He said to him, You have said so. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank you for these uh, minutes that we have here this morning. Uh, thank you that we could begin a new week in this way. Uh, thank you that we could do it together. I uh, thank you for the songs that we've been able to, to sing thus far in the time in the scriptures and in prayer already. Uh, we thank you for yet this time, this time a little bit more extended of reflecting on this passage uh, here in Matthew's gospel. We ask that you would place us there. Place us right Know what was going on in a deep transformative way, not just an informative way, but a transformative way, uh, such that uh, we are changed and not because we're thinking hard and not because we're working at it, but because by your grace and your mercy, your spirit is giving us eyes with which to see. We pray in your name. Amen. Our lives are full of symbols, right? So street signs. Street signs mark your location. Uh, you could say perhaps that a handshake marks an agreement. A signature at the bottom of a document marks the truthfulness of everything that preceded uh, that document. A wedding band. A wedding band is designed to mark faithfulness to a bond and, and, and a promise. Uh, all those things. That, that said, that said, that doesn't mean that just because you've got the sign guarantees that there won't be any misunderstanding because, you know, you go out and about in the ward and you realize, oh my goodness, not every ring is a wedding band. Oops. And not every hand gesture, by the way, is a friendly one. And in fact, some hand gestures that are friendly to us in this culture are just the opposite in other parts of the world, and by the way, you need to know that when you're traveling about in, uh, in other cultures as, as well. Well, the Lord's Supper, at the very least, we could say is something, it's more, something of a sign, something of a, of a symbol, and it too can be misunderstood. And so it's helpful to go back into the original context in which it was given and delve into that just a little bit. So that's what we're going to do here this morning. So the context historically in which this is taking place is Holy Week, it's oftentimes what the church uh, tradition is, is referred to in terms of this uh, span of time in Jesus' earthly ministry. Sunday, we call it Palm Sunday, he comes into Jerusalem riding as a king into his city. Monday, he comes into the temple, his temple, 
and cleanses it. Tuesday, an extended time of teaching, oftentimes referred to as the Olivet Discourse, where he begins to make, make clear to disciples then and now things regarding that which is coming on both the near and far horizon. In the midst of all this, and this is what we looked at last week, even as there was this dear woman, Mary, who anointed him because that she understood who he is and why it is that he has come, in the midst of all of that, in the background, there's this plot that's being hatched to be rid of him. So there's a whole lot going on, a gathering storm this week, or if I can mix the metaphors, momentum that is building, and it is gaining fast. But right here, in what we're reading here on this Thursday, Jesus slows the train down. He pauses it. Why? because he wants to give his disciples then and now a symbol and pledge of his love. Then and now, a symbol and pledge of his love. This sacrament, the Lord's Supper that we still celebrate uh, today. Jesus gives us the Lord's Supper. Jesus gives us the Lord's Supper, and that is a mark, that is a cause, that is a source of great assurance. Jesus gives his people the Lord's Supper, and that is a source, a cause of great assurance. Now, why do I say that? Why, why great assurance? Why camp out? Why press in on, on that? Well, it's especially so when you see these three things in this text, in the, in the, in the context, in the, in the giving of, of what his intentions are, in the context of what, of what we see going on here, these three things, there in your outline, we see his sovereign power on display. Oh, my goodness, the source of assurance in that. His gracious love on display, again, cause for the deepest of assurance. And then finally, his costly faithfulness, again, great grounds for great, deep, lasting assurance. Those three things, we see this in his provision of the Lord's Supper, and we need to look at this carefully together. So first, his sovereign power, great grounds, great grounds for our great Assurance. You see that in verses 17 through 19. Now, on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying, where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? He said, go into the city to a certain man and say to him, the teacher says, my time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. There's some ancient customs uh, in play here. And we need to acknowledge here at the start, though, before we even start talking about that, that there are limits to what we can know about those ancient customs. You need to know that there are limits to what we can know. Oftentimes, in, in the certain modern celebrations and hearkening back to the Passover and, and, and this sort of thing, um, you need to recognize that a lot of, of what we're doing in that is a lot of speculation grounded on writings that are from the third century third century. This is taking place in the first century, okay? That's not to say we can't know anything. It's just that we need to be careful. We need to know they were limited in how much we can know in terms of exactly what's going on here. Now, we can know at least these things when you string together the gospel accounts and, and just some of what we know about some of the customs that were in place, certainly at that time. First of all, we know that the representatives of every household would go about every year at the time of the Passover, preparing, as I said here, preparing the Passover. Now, what that meant was you would go to the temple and have a priest slaughter a lamb for you, 
The priests are the one that had to do this. And then you would take the lamb back home, and other dishes were being prepared there as well. Uh, there was a, a time of Q&A. Typically, it was a young boy, if there was, was a young laddie there in the, within the household, and he would then ask this question, what makes this night different from every other night? And the answer to his great question would be given by the head of the household, usually the father, and the father would then go into explaining and summarizing the history of the Exodus, going way, way back to the book of Exodus in that historical period in Israel's history. There would be um, four cups of wine that would be uh, taken, partaken uh, at, at specified intervals there within the Passover celebration, and hymns would be sung. Okay, all of that you can see here in our text. All of that you can see here in, in, in the text is reflected there either explicitly or implicitly. Those are the ancient customs. We see Jesus' purposes coming forth in the midst of these ancient customs. First of all, you see that just in terms of that night. Specifically, we see his purposes unfolding regarding things happening that very night. He wants to have an uninterrupted evening with his disciples that he would then be able to pass on to them final instructions, if you will, okay? And given his celebrity status within the city and given the hostility of his enemies and the plot that is being fomented or formed and whatever uh, at the time, it has to be a safe place. It has to be a secret place. And so with that in mind, a sign is arranged, Prearranged. The disciples being told to look for a man carrying a jar of water, understanding the typical roles of men and women in that culture. This is something women were almost in 99.9% of the time were the ones carrying the water. So this is like saying, look for a man with a big blue purse at the gym. Okay. He's going to stand out, and that's a signal to the disciples to, to know where to go, where to go and where this prearranged place is, is going to be. Well, obviously, all of this has to, points to a great deal of intentionality on Jesus' part, his purposefulness in, in all of, of this just with that night. But it goes far beyond just with that night, and his purpose is just in the prearrangement of, of all that. We see also here eternal purposes unfolding. We see the purposes of his mission coming to a head here this night. He says, my time is at hand. My time. At every other juncture in the Gospels, when up to this point, when the, his time, any discussion of his time is mentioned, he makes very clear it's not come. It's not yet. It's not yet. It's not yet. Here it is. Now, it's come. The bell has rung. Now it's come. The crucial moment of God's eternal, unshakable, unchangeable plan has come. Who's in control here? The disciples, no doubt, felt like things are just spinning out of control, that everything is chaotic. Likely that's how they're beginning to feel. His enemies, on the other hand, think that they're in control. Both are wrong. Both are dreadfully wrong. Oh, there's someone in control, all right. But it's him. It's 
him. He is in control both in terms of what's going to happen, when it's going to happen, how it's going to happen, and through whom it's going to happen. At every stage throughout this week, he is in control. Oh, and by the way, in every week there ever has been and ever will be, Jesus is in control of all of it. Every single bit of it, he is in control. And can we just say of last week in your life and mine, whatever else happened, and this upcoming week, your week and mine, ours, he is in control of of every week. He is the Lord of history, not just globally. So everything that drives you nuts about what's happening in the news, whether it's international, local, whatever it is, he is sovereign over all of that. Or your, lo- your own individual personal history, your bio. He is in control and Lord over that. All of it. Friends, when we rightly understand who is Lord over the whole of history, the whole of life, the whole of everything, his sovereign power at work, that is a source, that is grounds, that's the way we can sink the roots where we'll find great comfort and great encouragement. Great comfort and great encouragement. Nothing is happening randomly. Nothing is happening without purpose or plan or intentionality. It's his, his good plans and purposes always. As we reflect back and then as we move forward, it means that we can pray Think of the freedom that we have in this. We can pray, we can plan, where necessary we can work, and let it go. Leave it in his good, strong hands. It's great freedom here. It's great freedom here because of whose hand is on the wheel, who is actually in control. So just in the, the context of all of this, we see a demonstration of Jesus' sovereign power. In the institution of the Lord's Supper, we see grounds for great assurance. All the more so as we press forward and we see the second point, and that is his gracious love. So not just his sovereign power, but his gracious love on display here as well. So verses 20 through 25. When it was evening, he reclined at table with the twelve. And as they were eating, he said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful and began to say to him one after another, Is it I, Lord? He answered, He who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Judas, who would betray him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? He said to him, You have said so. This is so sobering what Jesus said says here. I wonder if we're actually hearing it. How many times, if you've, you've heard this read, how many, how, if we're really hearing how sobering, what a sobering statement this is, four times, lest you miss it, four times mention is made here of betrayal. And we just read. Betrayal. One of you. One of you. One of you who has, is right now sharing table fellowship with me this night will betray me. Betrayal is one of the ugliest, 
most painful things that any of us could ever endure. It's going to say experience. It's more than experience. It's endure, suffer. That's what Jesus is speaking of here. That's what's happening. And yet at the same time, that is prophecy fulfilled, and he speaks to that. This betrayal is the fulfillment of ancient prophecy long, long ago. Traitor's plan, that's right. Traitor's plan. But there is a much older plan, an eternal plan, that is behind the traitor's plan. Now, that doesn't mean that anyone gets off the hook here. That doesn't excuse anyone for anything here. The Bible is very clear. These two things happening at the same time. And if you only, if you only camp out on one of these two things, you're heading on the fast track to heresy. God's divine sovereignty over all things and man's accountability and responsibility for his choices. It's not this one only, and it's not this one only. It's somehow both at the same time, which means that this traitor is going to bear the responsibility of his actions for all eternity. That's what Jesus says in the pronouncement of this curse upon the one who betrays him. Well, not surprisingly, there are some strong responses from the, the 12 men assembled there in that room at that moment. And they're mixed responses. They're not all the same. The 11 respond one way. The other one, the traitor, responds in a different way. The other 11, as, as Matthew says, are very sorrowful. Another way of saying that would be, be to say that they are deeply troubled and profoundly grieved. They know something of their own hearts, and they are afraid he just might be speaking of them. And you could hear it in their question. As, as Matthew says, every one of them asked Jesus in turn, is it I, Lord? They're sobered, and they're frightened that he could actually be speaking of them. So that's the way they respond. But then there's Judas, and that's not really how he responds, though the question does look similar. Now, here it might be, care, it might be helpful to know something of the seating arrangements at, at this dinner. Bringing together, wedding together what we know of the ancient customs and what we know of the other gospels, here's what we can say in terms of the physical layout. If you walked into the room, this is what you would have seen. A U-shaped table arrangement low to the ground, much lower than what we're going to experience in the fellowship lunch or what you've got you know, at your home. These are right down towards the ground, the floor, okay? These tables, a U-shaped table with couches all around the outside. These men were laying on their left side, reclining at table. You know the way Matthew puts it. So you're laying on your left side with your feet stretched out away from the table, eating with your right hand, Okay? Jesus, in that U-shaped arrangement, is here in the middle at the place of honor. There are two other places of lesser honor, but right to his left and, and to his right. The apostle John is to his right. Judas is in the other place of honor to his left. Jesus has put Judas in one of the two places of honor. And that's where this man sits when he's 
doing and saying what he's doing. It's so sobering, so very sobering. Little wonder that none of the disciples have any idea as to what's going on. And, and he asked this question, is it I, not Lord, like the others said, there's no record of, Je- of, of Judas ever referring to Jesus as Lord. He says, is it I, Rabbi? A term of, of, of respect, yes. But that's about as far as it went. Is it I, Rabbi? We're not quite sure what's governing this, why he's asking the question. Perhaps Jesus and the shock and awe of that curse that he has pronounced is rattled Judas just a little bit. Perhaps he's just feigning the fear that the others are feeling, lest he expose himself. We don't really know exactly what's going on, but that's the question that he asks, and you think about the way everyone's seated, I was going to say seated, situated there in the room. Judas is speaking into Jesus' right ear, and he says what he does. So very, so very, Sobering. Here's what's going on. Here's, here's the crucial, crucial thing to recognize in all of this. How, how Jesus' gracious love shows itself in this setting. It is the brokenness of the men there at that meal. It is the brokenness and sinfulness and weakness of the men there at that meal that makes this meal and all it stands for vital and necessary. It is what we see transpiring that night that makes what that night was all about absolutely vital. The whole of humanity, we, every one of us in this room, is exposed in that room and what's transpiring that night. And we see Jesus' gracious love so powerfully displayed his gracious love for you and for me. Nothing of the need has changed between then and now. We have the same need, every one of us here this morning. Every one of us has committed cosmic treason against the God of the universe. Every one of us is suffering from a spiritual cancer, eating us up from the inside out. Every one of us outside of Jesus is destined toward an eternal death. The same need and the same solution. One who would die in our place. One who would be the substitute. One who is without stain, who would remove the stain. This is not just love. I'm not playing with words here. This is not just love for the undeserving. This is love for the ill-deserving. You recognize the difference? The undeserving would just be the stranger in the street who who you have no obligation towards, right? They don't deserve anything from you. It's not just love for the undeserving. This is love for the person, I don't know, who broke into your house and killed your children. This is not just love for the undeserving. This is love for the ill-deserving. This is grace. This is God's 
gracious love for such as us. So we see here in the supper, oh my goodness, what grounds for assurance we have. His gracious love so powerfully, powerfully on display. Well, that then takes us to the last point, not just uh, his sovereign power, um, his gracious love, but his costly faithfulness. Verses 26 through 30. Now, as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. This is the new covenant that Jesus is speaking of here. These new words had been so startling. So in the context of something that had been in place for some 1,500 years, the celebration of the Passover, that's the historicity of it. And then you think in just in terms of the, the lives of these men, the, the, the 12 men there at that table, they grew up with this. They're used to a certain cadence every year. This is what is said. This is what is said. This is, wait, wait. Not this. Nobody's ever said this. Jesus says some profoundly new things in the context of something very, very old, something very beautiful, something that had been long, long waited for. Jeremiah chapter 31, the words of the new covenant. Jeremiah 31, verses 31 and following, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord, but this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. All from the very beginning, right there in Genesis 3, on and the covenants that made that one possible in the unfolding of, of redemptive history are about this. But it comes into the clearest focus here with the new covenant that Jesus inaugurates, the forgiveness of sin and a right relationship with God. The forgiveness of sin and a right relationship with God. A new covenant, but only through sacrifice. A new covenant but only through sacrifice, his, his. And in this, the greatest question that we could ever ask gets its answer. The greatest question that we could ever ask gets its answer. And the question is, how can I be forgiven? How can I be forgiven. There's no way, when you really think about it, there's no way that the slaughter of all these lambs, and it doesn't matter how many, and how right they were, there's no way 
that that's going to accomplish the forgiveness of my sin for you or anybody else. The only thing that can do is point to the necessity of another who would die for the sake of our sin, to die in our place. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, as John speaks of Jesus. It's the only thing that that could be about. How can I be forgiven? How can God be, as Paul says in Romans, both just and merciful? He can't just pretend it didn't happen. Like, you know, we usually peace fake the way our families oftentimes work, right? The way, you know, just sweep it under the rug, pretend it didn't happen, that sort of thing. Peace faking, not peacemaking. God makes peace. He doesn't pretend it didn't happen. He deals with it. And he deals with our sin through Jesus on the cross. That's how he can yet be both just and merciful at the same time. So the greatest question we could ever ask is answered. This does, of course, raise some other questions, and I'll grant that. What does Jesus mean when he says, this is my body, right? And some of you may know that there's no, there's been a little bit of discussion about that point um, across the world through the ages. Uh, the Roman Catholic answer to that question is, when Jesus says, this is my body, uh, the answer is, well, somehow in a mysterious, invisible way, the bread becomes his body. And the wine becomes his blood. And I just say this is all charitability that's wrong. Jesus is clearly speaking metaphorically. He's standing there, or I'd say sitting there, laying there, his body present holding the bread. When he says, this is my body, which is he speaking of? He's speaking in metaphor. He's speaking in metaphor. When he says, I am the gate, he does not have hinges. Speaking metaphorically, it's very obvious. Now, some have swung far, too far to the other extreme and said there's no symbolism. This is all symbolism. It's just a memorial ceremony that we go through. It's just purely symbolic. It's too far. It's going too far. What that would mean is the only way that this does us any good is if we focus and concentrate hard enough and do an, a, a mental self-discipline and remember. That's not, that's not what we're speaking of either. either. Jesus is assuring us, and we gather together at the Lord's table. He is present with us, not physically, but spiritually. And for those who come to Him in faith, He promises to be present with us, to remind us of who and whose we are, and to reassure us of those realities, impress those things upon our troubled hearts all the more, and all of that is His grace. All of that is out of love and because he knows our need for these constant reminders. Back to the beginning, though, this point, the third point. The Lord's Supper, among other things, is about Jesus' costly faithfulness, a new covenant that comes through sacrifice, a new covenant, the inauguration of a new covenant that comes through sacrifice. Now, think with me the implications of this. We are really free. We are really free. And you think in terms of what he's saying, the significance of what he's saying there in that moment. He's saying you are free. And, and he's not saying you're free of Egyptian shackles and bonds and slave masters. That was pointing towards 
something else, real as that was. He's saying you're free from sin's power and its penalty. You're free. Think of what we have. Think of who we have. As Paul says again in Romans, in Romans 8, if God be for us, who can be against us? Think of what we have, what Jesus, the implications of what Jesus is saying, and who we have. So much, so much, so much dramatic beauty here on display here in the supper. So much grounds for the deepest assurance. Think back to when you were a child. No few of us I know had this experience. Show and tell, right? It, it was, it's like a rite of passage when you're a young kid in elementary school. The idea is that you, 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 is when it's your turn, you get something from home, and you bring it to school, and you explain to everyone there in the class uh, what this thing is and where it came from and why it's important and, and such, as, such as that. I can remember some of my experience with that as a kindergartner. Um, our teacher had a calendar in the room. It was something of a countdown, you know, for every kid who, whose turn was coming up. I don't know what day of the week it was. We'll say Friday. So, it was, you know, it was Johnny's turn on Friday and Susie's turn that next Friday. And then, oh, my gosh, it's Richard's turn, you know, coming up later in the month. And there was, uh, there was this mix of emotions, like further out. like it? Will they like me? Will I screw up my words? It's like what I think every Sunday morning. What, will, they, will I fumble over what I'm saying? But really, show and tell is actually done rightly. Is, it's good for the kid. It's hard, but it's good for the kid. It's really good for the, pe- the, the class. You know why? Because it gives them something to look at. It gives them something to, to, to see as if something's being shown. The Lord's Supper is like show and tell. Now you say, oh, come on. We're adults here. No, you're not. (laughs) I mean, yeah, but we don't outgrow the need for the show and the tell. We need to be, we need to hear it. We need to see it. You think of how much gospel telling goes on in the context of of the service, Right? In, in, in the, the reading and in the songs, right? And, and, and the message of we are, we are safe and secure by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, gospel telling. Or, you know, your sin is far worse than you dared to ever fear, but it's, it's okay because his love for you is far better than you ever dared to hope. Or gospel telling, uh, you know, there's, there's actually nothing in Christ. There's nothing you can do to make God love you more, any more than he already does. And there's also nothing you can do to make him love you any less. It's all good news. That's gospel telling. But then with the supper, there's gospel showing. All our senses are involved at that point. We see it. We touch it. We feel it. We taste it. And I'll grant you, there's more going on there than just learning styles, far more. Again, I said this earlier, Jesus promises his very presence to meet us in this beautiful, sweet way to, to meet us, to be with us as surely and truly as he was with his disciples in the upper room the night here in the account. 
in that moment, he is saying, I am present with you when you gather together in this way. I'm with you to remind you, to reassure you of who and whose you are and how that can be. I am really giving you vital, vital, no, vital embrace to set grounds, cause for assurance here in suffering. and extraordinary things of our lives. We need the supper and you so want us to have it that you've provided it and we need it. Thank you.